everybody, welcome to INE Live. I'm your host, Katherine Brown, and today we're tackling governance, risk, and compliance, or GRC. And I promise it's gonna be fun, believe it or not. We're talking about how to get your enterprise checking all the boxes in the most secure, efficient, and cost-effective ways possible. And we have a panel of experts to lead you through some of the biggest challenges and talk through some really innovative solutions. We're also conducting a live poll right now. You can head on over to info.ine.com GRC. That's info.ine.com slash GRC. We'll put it on the screen for you to take part in the poll. You can drop your answers in and also register to see the results, getting insights into industry trends as it relates to GRC and cybersecurity, and in particular in the areas of experience, confidence, and automation. So be sure and do that. We'll be putting that, uh, that website address on the screen for you during this live stream so you can head over there at any point. First, as we do each time we stream here on INE Live, want to let you know we are, of course, streaming live right now across social media platforms, including LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch. Be sure to like and subscribe on the social media platform you're using so you can always stay in the loop when we're live. We want you to get involved, talk to us, talk to others. We see you getting involved in our chat right now. We love to see that. Our team is monitoring chat, so if you have a comment, go ahead and drop it in. If you have a question, do us a favor, put a cue at the beginning so we can find those easily. And the links to those polls I'm just noticing are in all of the uh, chat threads as well, so you can click on that as well. We'll get to as many questions and comments as we can today. With that, I will bring in our guest, starting with Igor Volovich. Igor is an award-winning cybersecurity executive, currently Vice President of Compliance Strategy at Cumulus. Igor has led and advised some of the largest commercial and public sector enterprise security programs. He's a frequent speaker, host of the Compliance Therapy Podcast, and co-author of the upcoming security leadership book, Dear CISO, Notes from the Battlefield. Igor, so glad to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Jack Reedy also here today. Jack is INE's Director of Cybersecurity Content, no stranger on INE Live. He has more than 14 years experience in global enterprise operations across blue, purple, and red team functionalities. Jack's experience in cybersecurity spans a variety of industries from defense, entertainment, to technology, making his insights in particularly valuable and his awareness of cybersecurity solutions applicable to a wide array of challenges. It's going to be a fun stream here today. Jack, Igor, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, we are going to kick it off with, uh, with the P word. All right, forgive me, right? The pandemic. It's been called the single greatest agent of digital transformation, driving rapid adoption of cloud and telework worldwide. I mean, it changed the way that everyone did business. And, and along the way, many enterprises were really found themselves unprepared, right? Or at least underprepared for this huge disruption of the traditional work models, with security often taking a back seat, um, right, to ensuring continued business operations and sustained productivity. So I'm curious, um, and, and Igor, we'll start with you here, and Jack, I'd love to hear from you as well. Um, the kinds of challenges in particular that you face as a security and business leader during these times as we're trying to get security back up there to the forefront while also repositioning the way that, that everyone does business. Well, you're absolutely right with the repositioning uh, start. I think that's a, that's a good uh, launching point for this conversation. So we tend to view security as kind of an adjunct function or it's a, even if it's a core function, it's still considered to be a separate segregated function. So it's, you know, and as long as we continue to treat security as a separate function that stands on its own, 
um, it will never really be truly integrated and uh, it will never really become an integral part of the business. And I think that's that's something that we're seeing the trend, at least certainly in leadership circles that I try to, to insert myself into. Uh, the conversation I try to foster is really about integrating security, making it a dimension of each business function, not so much a standalone function. And we've seen, you know, kind of standalone function of security being there for a long time. Folks have sort of accepted it. You know, you have the CISO function. That's a separate team. You've got a compliance functions. That's that's a separate team. You've got audit. You've got risk management. Uh, you know, you, you've got assessment. You've got all these different functions. Ultimately, the objective is to manage risk, right? How we do it, what we're doing, the tools, the techniques, the procedures, the policies, all of that is really important. But these are kind of the how and the what. The real why, right? If we start with why, as Simon Sinek says, we really want to go back to what we're trying to do. We're trying to protect the business. We're trying to ensure a resilient business operation. We're trying to ensure continuity. And, and really, in the end, we're protecting the value chain, right? How do we generate the value in the business? And I, it doesn't really matter what kind of mission you're in. You know, if you're in government, of course, you know, we're not really generating profits. If you're working for a nonprofit, of course, you're not generating profits. But really, ultimately, focusing on what the mission is, understanding what the mission is, and then figuring out how to protect it, that's really an objective. Research shows that the best way to do it, and certainly the emerging trend that we're seeing from analyst firms, they're definitely talking about this idea of really distributing security decisions and ensuring accountability at the level of actual business function. So embedding security in, that's really the true answer, I think. And what we've seen during the pandemic, to go back to the original question, folks really focused on, well, let's just get operations up. Let's make sure that we can support the new use cases, the new work models. Everybody's going home, so let's let's go ahead and push out these solutions to the endpoint. And, you know, folks kind of forgot about how to do traditional security, let's say, right? Figuring out, you know, what it actually takes to protect the business. We focused on the use case individually. We tried to make sure, okay, we can get people back to work. And and now that there's kind of that shift back to more of a kind of traditional work model, maybe there's a lot of hybrid work models in place still continuing. A lot of folks never are going back to the office. So we kind of have to play both both ends of that spectrum. On the one hand, we still have to protect the traditional resilient enterprise. On the other hand, here's all these folks that went home and not going back. So we gotta, we, we kind of have to rethink. So you said reposition. I really want to put a, a big pin in that, right? Repositioning, and it really starts with shifting the mindset, right? How do we think about security? Is it is it really kind of an adjunct, add-on function, or do we really embed it in? And so we have to stop thinking about kind of we're in this pandemic mode. We're post the pandemic now, right? We're, we're living in the post-pandemic world. And so let's get back to basics. Let's ensure cyber hygiene. Let's make sure we understand what the attack surface looks like. Let's under, understand the threat models as they apply to our business. And regardless of what work model we find ourselves in, principles apply, right? Just because we went home doesn't mean security went away, right? Or it has to be haphazard. It has to be slapped on you know, as an afterthought, right? Same principles apply. You still have to do the basics. You have to understand what kind of the foundational principles of your program are. And you also have to have good measurement. How do you understand if you're actually doing what you're supposed to be doing and if it's working, right? And, I, and we'll talk about that, I think, more in the, in the conversation. So over to Jack. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think that there was almost a... Uh, you know, 49 gold mine rush to the cloud, if you will, where everybody was just laying claim to what they could from a business operations standpoint. But with that, you know, s traditional security comes with a lot of technical controls already built in and a lot of the processes are on the rails. When we rushed into this new technology and started creating these, you know, forefronts for our business, I feel like a lot of the normal technical controls that you would have from a business standpoint, we're kind of left behind. 
So you have developers that are just kind of doing stuff with admin tokens and access and all sorts of, you know, issues with authentication identity. I can't tell you how many different, you know, incidents I ran where somebody put shared keys up in a uh, in a GitHub repository. Right. So I think I think right now where we're at is we went from, OK, let's get operational and we're kind of having to walk backwards into, OK, now it's time to really implement and tie down these technical controls to something that we can still enable business through allowing the developers to create. But they don't necessarily have access to our master billing account, you know, and <laughs> or, um, you know, just 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 because they can create doesn't necessarily mean they need access to all these data pools or. You know, being able to share this the, the, these accounts out to the entire world, things like that, which luckily AWS has adjusted for that. That's not the default anymore, right? But still, it's one of those things where we have to go back and now audit what we've created in the meantime, just to make sure that the controls are being applied appropriately. And we're still enabling business functions as we slowly tighten it down. I don't think in the cloud environment, the screen test is going to pass muster. You know what I mean? Like you can't just shut stuff off. Right. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think that the idea that we kind of, you know, went out there and pushed into the cloud, everybody, like you said, yeah, it's a, it was a, the crazy 49ers rushed to, to the cloud. And, and that's exactly what happened. We saw it in government. We saw it in commercial. We saw it everywhere, right? Defense, certainly, right? I mean, to a lesser extent, I mean, we still have folks who are operating at like 95% on-prem environments, but they have to, right? So we get that. Mm -hmm. You know, some folks are still living the skiff life. I mean, that's never gone away. And especially here in the Beltway, that's, you know, a lot of people who live the skiff life. And for, for folks who don't know that term, it's a, a secure compartment information facility you're living in a bunker yeah. basically your, your phone goes into a locker your laptop goes into a locker you bring nothing in with you you carry nothing out it's kind of the campsite yeah. rule you know <laughs> the way you found it and yeah. uh, and so you have to actually you know our company actually found out the hard way that it's difficult to create the kind of talent get the kind of talent that keep the kind of talent that can actually walk into that type of environment and not be able to google search for a snippet of code right it's a different kind of you know you have mm -hmm. to be Right, you have to be able to operate independently. So we do have a lot of a lot of folks who still operate in those models, but that's not the reality for most. Most folks are out there. You know, the networks are dispersed. The perimeter has gone away. Right, it's melted away. It's been replaced by cloud. We've got edge computing. We've got all kinds of things going on. IoT is proliferating across many different use cases, and so you've got this kind of a very fuzzy line between where the enterprise used to be in and where it actually extends to now. It's really becomes. Conversation about identity, conversation about data. So it's more of a data-centric, identity-centric conversation. And then the controls that you apply really have to be informed by true risk, understanding of risk, right? And and the way to get there is through threat modeling, of course, which, you know, is kind of a... It, sadly is not a common art form, right? You know, people look at it as kind of a thing that, well, yeah, I mean, we, I wish we knew how to do it. And I can't tell you how many folks I've talked to in the last 10 years where they say, well, I mean, we, we, we wish we had this capability, but we don't. So we basically got to go bottom up, start with tech, and we'll just buy one of everything, whatever says, you know, the latest report from one of the analyst firms, pick, you know, pick, pick one, Forrester, Gartner, et cetera, right? And, and then we'll just apply it and hope for the best. It's basically yeah. throwing spaghetti at the wall, hope it sticks. And what it does, it looks maybe like an abstract painting, but more often than not, it looks like garbage, right? And so we've seen companies and, and, and enterprise programs spend tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, hoping that it, you know, eventually they'll have enough up, uh, that they'll have enough layers, they'll have enough, they get, you know, that defense in depth. It, it implies a certain rigidity. It implies that a certain level of control over your environment where you can actually create a stack of products. You know, defense in depth against what, right? There is no no castles. There is no moats. There is no defined perimeter. So what are you protecting, right? You have to protect the data. You have to protect the, the identities. And, and really knowing what the assets are 
and what the controls are doing. You know, there's a big push towards, you know, we need to know, understand our assets. So it's asset identification, mapping out your surface, mapping out your attack surface. In the cloud, it's a little easier, right? Of course, you know, we see the providers actually go, be, being a little, a little more upfront with it. Of course, we have a lot of folks out there who are doing the work, you know, to, to, uh, to augment those capabilities. It's still very nascent. It's nowhere near where we'd like it to be, right? But at least there is a move towards it. But I, you know, there's this decided focus, decided focus on, like, let's figure out what we've got so we can protect it. There seems to be an insufficient focus on understanding, having the same level of understanding about the controls that you're applying and how efficient and effective they are. And, and folks tend to think, well, that's just a compliance thing. We just do that. We'll do it once a year. We'll do it once every six months, whatever the, the mandate says. And, and there's no real understanding of, well, how do you do it continuously? How do I continuously assess and understand where not only my assets are and where my people are and my identities are and where the workflows move and, and, and data flows move? I mean, that's really important. That's the starting point. That's kind of the foundational table stakes, right? But then when you start applying controls, there's sort of this fire and forget mentality. You know, it's like we'll, we'll apply these controls and now we'll wait to see if they're effective. And usually they'll do it through a pen test or they'll wait for the breach to happen, which unfortunately will happen soon enough. Right. So is there a better way? I think there is, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's you know, it's funny that you kind of landed on pen test as the, the method of checking for compliance, because that's where my mind was at the entire time is that, yeah, we spend, you know, what is it, every 18 months ballpark that you pay a, a third party firm or, you know, somebody internally to come and pen test and are our overall controls actually working the way that we intended. And I kind of mentioned the screen test previously as well is does that break business, right? And, the, it, you know, it's one extreme versus the other. It's am I getting hacked or am I breaking business? And there's no in between as to, you know, uh, there was, um, if you can't select an individual user, right, and see what they do or do not have access to as far as data shares, uh, even communication efforts, right? It's, it's a little ridiculous in the fact that you can control all the assets you want that are physically plugged into the network, but if you can't control the data, you know, it, you're just kind of lost in the sauces a little bit. You still have a little fog of war on the map, if you will, if this was a mini map, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think being able to get down to that individual micro level. So, you know, we look at the programs typically from a macro level, you know, a CISO, a CTO, a CRO, right? We, we tend to think of it as, uh, you know, what's my program doing? And you, you try to look at statistics, right? Because that's, you're trying to see patterns. You're trying to understand, okay, you, look, I've got $50 million I got to spend. I, I can spend, hopefully, right? And, and there's this, a bit of a, I feel like there's a bit of a myopic view to a lot of things, again, because security tends to be sort of a segregated function. It's its own function, right? It's got its own budget. CISOs, in my experience, don't necessarily look beyond their own domain. They tend to look at security tools, security technology, security processes, security talents, security people. Uh, and and they, they tend to feel like, well, the world's on my shoulders. There's a lot of stress. People don't last in these jobs, right? And they also get fired a lot, right? So... The, the idea that we only have security things to control outcomes, I think it's a little, a little outdated. I think it's also a little myopic. And I, I get the internal politics, like we understand there's organizational politics. You know, you have to show ROI for the investment that you're making as a CISO. And uh, it can be very difficult to do. It's probably one of the most difficult things to do, right, to demonstrate, to quantify what you're getting. You know, we have Rosie, right, return on security investment. That never took off. People kind of went and looked at it and said, bah, who cares, right? Because it, it, it never really made sense, right? So we're trying to, to exert a level of influence over outcomes with a lot of uncertainty. And, and also a lot of uncertainty around, well, 
can we actually demonstrate that we are influencing those outcomes, right? That's a difficult thing, right? So we default to these really weird metrics like, well, let's look at how much money we've spent on a particular type of technology. Let's look at categories of things. Let's look at compliance frameworks and say, okay, well, this is how compliant we are. So that should be a proxy for how secure we are. And of course, we know compliance organizations get breached all the time. That's a mantra that's been kind of a cliche for a long time, right? And yeah. everybody always does the same thing. We saw it with the Colonial Pipeline. We got breached and here's the CEO sitting there in Congress and going, but here's a compliance report from you know six months ago that says we're compliant. And he was very proud to say that we didn't have a bad password. It wasn't password one, two, three, it was something else. Yeah, but you didn't have MFA, so that password was useless anyway, right? So we, when we look at, at our programs, I kind of feel like there's a level of, uh, of focus on just the security things for security people. And we don't look beyond, right? We don't look, we don't recognize other investments, other maybe tools and technologies and certainly people assets that could be included in the program that have a security value to them uh, because we don't have an easy model. Typically, organizations don't have an easy model for, for understanding their technologies as security controls. There is a big gap. There's a big separation, kind of a chasm, I would say, between risk management, security management and compliance management. Right. They compare. They, they seem to be completely diverged. And, you know, there's a concept that I'd love to talk about later on in the conversation, uh, a concept of convergence that I've been promoting. Uh, but we can talk about that later. But I, I think that's, I, I'm agreeing with you completely. I think there is a, a level of, um, uh, of limitation. I think there's just a limitation in the inherent thinking within the security space. You know, we think about, uh, you know, security things. We don't tend to follow the experience model, right? And I think that's what you said, right? You know, can we get it down to a level of a single user, single process, yep. single workflow, and map that out and understand that from a threat modeling perspective? And and there's something else I like to talk about, which is the security experience design. And and a lot of people haven't heard that phrase before. That's really the idea of taking what we know about UX, right? User experience yep. and experience design, and really mapping it to security and risk management, you know, and, and it's not just to the level of, you know, what's the analyst experiencing when they look at a console, right? What is a SOC person experiencing when they look at some SIM platform, right? It's really the security experience of the entire enterprise. How do they experience security? How does interface, how does security interface with them in their daily lives? Is it a positive experience? Is it a negative experience? Every time we've done an instant poll during one of these conversations, it's 50-50. People say, some people say they absolutely hate dealing with security and risk. And especially compliance, everybody hates compliance, right? Kind of like they, they everybody hates insurance, right? Like two, two, two of the most hated professions in America are actually auto dealer, used car dealer, and insurance broker. That tells you something, right? <laughs> so compliance kind of fits in that same story, right? So uh, if we can focus on creating a better compliance, security, risk management experience, and really focus on being able to look at things at that micro level, right? Of course, we can't look at everything, but at least we can, we can capture representative experiences so we can understand things from that perspective. We can lean into some of the conversations about culture, culture change, which is kind of that next level evolution of, of your traditional uh, user behavior uh, management, right? And, uh, you know, traditional awareness training, which has sort of fallen short of our goals. We can evolve towards that. But again, it starts with this having the intent and being very authentic about trying to understand what is that user experience across that entire model. So, so Igor, yeah. just to, to jump in there, um, you know, you're talking about engaging security awareness training programs and, and to your point, getting back to, you know, when, when the CEO is very proud of the passwords and this and that. And, you know, um, I, I think most enterprises try and drive that security awareness um, among employees. But mm -hmm. 
regardless, users remain the single most frequently exploited point of failure in security incidents. Um, have we sort of reached like peak awareness of this? I mean, I, it seems like everybody knows, right, at this point, like multi-factor authentication, you know, change your password every, every X number of days, whatever. I, have we reached this peak awareness? And if so, what can be done to address this ongoing, persistent, like human risk factor? Great question. I appreciate that, Catherine. So, yeah, I think the, the answer is probably yes. I think if we haven't even haven't reached peak awareness, we're probably approaching it pretty quickly. I, I think there's an inherent limit built into how much you can actually get uh, out of uh, security awareness training, right? Ultimately, we are talking about behavioral change management. We're talking about organizational change management and really culture change. And, and so these are the kinds of concepts that, you know, security folks are not really great at because most security folks are not, you know, they're mostly technologists, they're not behavioral experts. And so when we talk to uh, folks out there who are actually doing that kind of work, what they're saying is, yeah, they, they're reaching kind of the limit of how much change, how much influence they can exert through traditional and I'm putting big air quotes around traditional because, you know, what does that mean? Basically, your typical training, you know, come down, look at a thing six months, you know, every six months or every three months. We're going to show you a video. We're going to maybe maybe have you play a game. Uh, you know, it's we're, we're looking at a lot more gamifying, you know, out there. People are, are liking gamification. It seems to be a little more engaging. I just went to a conference a couple of days ago and and there's a lot of a lot of talk about that in the in the awareness training community. So we're trying to find ways to get into the mind of the user you know, the, the biggest attack service that we've got. Um, but it's it's a difficult proposition because, well, people have their daily jobs, right? You know, security is not a component of what they do. They don't think about it. And we're trying as much as we keep talking about it, as much as we keep saying, security is everybody's problem. Security is everyone's responsibility. We've been reluctant. And when I say we, I mean, as the industry, we've been reluctant to apply actual accountability, to actually demand accountability in real tangible ways. Meaning, if you're responsible for a breach or an incident and something you've done was willful negligence, right? Look, honest mistakes are honest mistakes, right? But if you actually unpack it and you say, look, you knew you were not supposed to do it, you willfully were negligent, then there should be some kind of a penalty. And I mean, and there, and it can be, you know, like the days of Hammurabi, you know, it, it can just be, you know, you stole something, you get your hand chopped off, or you built a bad building, and we're going to collapse the wall on you as a, you know, that that's the punishment, right? The deterrence model has exhausted itself. It's that that's where we I think we're reaching the peak, right? So it's not so much peak awareness. I think it's peak deterrence. Right? There's only so much that we can do to deter bad behavior. There has to be a better way to encourage positive behavior in in good positive ways, right? So it is about ultimately it boils down to culture change. And if you're willing as an organization to invest in that, I think you can exert the kind of influence you're trying to exert, positive influence, good influence, and really create better outcomes long term. Um, where it's not this adversarial model of, model of security, always the department of no, always the department of, of, of enforcement. You know, they're kind of the internal, you know, uh, they're the cops running around, you know, in the night and trying to get people, you know, catch people doing bad things. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then, of course, you've got entrapment, right? Where you, we're doing these phishing tests and we catch people and then we hammer them and say, you know, you got to do more training. It's like, I just did training. And apparently I didn't learn anything because I just, I just failed your phishing test. So what mm -hmm. gives, right? So it creates this negative feedback loop. I mean, it's, it's, it's a positive feedback loop of negativity. Let's go with that, right? Yeah. How do, we, how do we break out of that, I think, is the question. I think it's culture change, right? So investing in culture change, and I know it sounds fuzzy, and I know it sounds hokey, and it's kumbaya, and we're sitting around the fire playing with our tambourines, but, and security people don't like to talk about that. But you're talking about the human element here, which is the biggest attack surface, and yet we're ignoring it and trying to throw more technology at the problem. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a failure mode, right? We, we need to get yeah. past it.
So Jack, is it a matter of more training? Is it a matter of better training, more engaging training? Um, what, what's the answer? I think that we have two primary issues and the culture shift is a great example of that. Yes, we need to get away from negative reinforcement, period, because people make mistakes. Um, you, and the thing is, is that with negative reinforcement, users are going to try and hide their mistakes, which is just going to exasper, exacerbate the problem because as a security practitioner, I can't fix what I don't know about. And if the user clicks on something, I can't go then fix it quickly. I have to wait for an alert to hit a console and you might've already given away the keys to the kingdom. So it, it's a much better. And I think a solution here is to remember as employees of a company, you know, we exist to best enable business operations. If we are a hindrance to business operations, that's where we're out of a job. So as security, our best bet is to work together, you know, synergy with the employees to make sure that they are safe and secure. And if they mess up, we're all in this together. Let's fix it. Let's talk about how to get better about it and then move forward. And it's, you know, that might be just a little bit of the military small unit leadership stuff coming in from, from my experience, but it's still one of those things where we all have the same objective, better endpoint sales, better, you know, services being provided, better customer experience, whatever it is, the betterment of the business is better for all, right? At least for us as employees. So with that type of mindset from a security and a culture standpoint, we could fix this. I think the other problem too is, well, I guess there's three problems. The other problem is the engagement factor of security training, where it's not just PowerPoints, but actually getting the, you know, there's so many different ways that people learn and experience and engage. That's why we try and have, we have slides, we have instructors talking to you, we have, you know, actual labs that you can put your hands on and things like that. It's the same thing in security awareness, just because a user might not be familiar with bash and scripting and something like that. It's not to say that they can't put their hands on something you know, to actually mess around with security in some way, shape or form. So I think that we are checking too much of a box right now with uh, user training. Mm -hmm. And we need to be a little bit better about what is actually going to get this point across uh, from an education standpoint. And then lastly, even when we do things right, attackers find ways around it. For example, with MF, uh, Cisco Talos recently released a report on how Cisco was breached due to MFA exhaustion. They had MFA set up. They had a pass, uh, complicated password. And the individual basically just kept getting MFA alert after MFA alert at a cyclic rate to the point to where he finally just said yes. And that, you know, at which point with everything done right, at which point, like, did the user who knew what they were doing, they had MFA and they didn't just immediately hit yes, they kept hitting no at a point of exhaustion of like, I'm tired of this thing vibrating in my pocket constantly. Let me just hit yes on this once and then talk to security about it. Keys of the kingdom were already gone. They were able to respond pretty quickly to it. But the point being is that like, we can teach users to not click on stuff all we want, but if the attackers are going to still find ways around it, you know, there's, you, there's, there's a point where it's like, uh, you know, what, what is the, what, what is, what is the, uh, you know, at which point is it the attacker's just good, you know, and, and the user isn't necessarily wrong in this case. You, you can understand it from a um, attack frame point where it becomes a social engineering aspect, 
right? Where they just get one over on you. And and it even happens to CEOs. We know BEC is one of the main drivers right now. And those individuals, you know, they're not they're not the somebody in accounting or answering a phone or something like that. They're supposed to be the head of the company, you know, really in in the know of what is and is not security. And yet they're still the ones getting compromised much more frequently, actually, than you would expect. You know, so I, I think that it's a combination of culturalism to fix the issue where we need to be as well as education, fix the education. And then also, again, work towards a commonality of a goal from an organization standpoint. So that way we have a little empathy towards the people that do actually click on things and stuff like that when when necessary, when when needed. Right. <laughs> So I got a good question coming in from Dharmesh Patel watching on YouTube. Dharmesh, thank you for the question. Um, asking, is there any tool in the market that could help to fill the gap between risk management compliance and security management? Any uh, specifically unified tool? Well, we certainly believe so, and I appreciate the question, Dharmesh. So um, we are promoting the concept of convergence, and we call it Converge Continuous Compliance. And so we actually built our platform over the last 10 years to do exactly that. Uh, and the idea is we're trying to eliminate the gap and, and really create this convergence model for managing risk, security, and compliance jointly. We view compliance as not, again, we don't want to view compliance as its own domain. Traditionally, it is, right? You know, people do compliance, full stop, then they do security, full stop, then they do risk management. Compliance and risk management really should be considered one unified function. Security is just one of the things that we do in our business. Compliance is how we say that we're, how we demonstrate that we're actually doing it right, right? Compliance is not just a thing you have to get past. Compliance can actually be very useful, but you have to do it on a continuous basis. And what we found empirically over many years of experience that we've been doing this as a company and as individual practitioners is that really the only difference between true risk management as people think of it and compliance management is time scale. So when you look at compliance, typically you're looking in the rearview mirror. You're always looking backwards, right? You're capturing past state. Uh, and, and that's not particularly useful from a risk management perspective because, well, how, how can you be expected to make risk-based decisions uh, about protecting your business on data that sometimes goes back to three years or more, right? Especially in the federal space, triannual assessments, reassessments, that's, that's the reality. So you're looking at data from two, three years ago. I mean, even if it's two weeks old, it's probably out of date, right? So from an operational value perspective, it, it carries very little value. So for, from security organizations, um, perspective, they don't tend to view compliance as particularly useful. It's a drag. It's a resource constraint. It's something else I have to do. It's another piece of data I have to uh, to give to somebody. And when we talk about that experience design aspect, right, when we think about, you know, what is the compliance experience for, for most folks, it's very negative, right? It's always people asking me for data. It takes forever. It goes into some spreadsheet. It's not particularly alive or useful or dynamic. Uh, you know, extracting insights out of it is very difficult. And by the way, what's the point? We're going to have to come back and do it again next year, right? And it's all just so we can do this report, check the big fat box, somebody signs off and off it goes. That's the way compliance has been seen traditionally. And it's been seen that way, frankly, since the days of Hammurabi. I mentioned the code of Hammurabi. Like that's our first known written code of compliance, right? It had a building code in it. It was very simple. You build a bad building and somebody dies, we collapse the building on top of the person who built it, right? Very, very draconian, very barbaric, but it was probably effective. We, we actually don't know how effective it was, right? But we have building codes now, and they're pretty good, pretty damn effective, right? So Pretty effective. Uh, yeah, pretty effective. So when we think about kind of that deterrence model of compliance, 
that's the way things have been built. And really, they, they barely changed over the last 4,000 years. We're a lot more sophisticated. We're a lot more civilized. You know, we don't flog people in the public square anymore if they do bad things. But ultimately, that's kind of what lies at the core of this, right? And But it's always looking at past acts. There's this built inherent limitation of traditional compliance. And so when we asked the question about 10 years ago, well, how would you change it? If you were trying to disrupt that traditional model, really create true security value out of compliance programs, you would have to converge on that time scale. That was the first convergence factor for us. And so if we can do compliance in real time, that was the first realization. The second one was, well, how would you actually implement it? And the answer was, well, you have to go to the real time data. Where do you get that, right? You can't get it from people. And by the way, there's also the trust factor, right? That's the third portion. And can you really trust opinions? And well, the answer is really you can't because they're subjective, right? So when you look again at traditional compliance and audit programs, look, I've been a certified auditor, I've been an assessor, I've, I've done remediation work for large companies who couldn't pass their assessments and, and audits. And so I, I'm very familiar with the process. It's a negotiation. And, and whenever I ask an auditor, you know, do you realize you're always engaged in a the negotiation? They go, yeah, we know. That's the reality, right? So there's this inconsistency in a process that's meant to create consistency in your risk management practices, right? These frameworks, these standards, they're built on threat profiles. You know, take PCI GSS, that's a good example, right? It's based around cardholder data protection. So these controls are meant to wrap around those kinds of threat models. And then you take that across, right? Any other framework is based on those kinds of ideas. You know, NIST 853, lots of smart people at NIST sat around and came up with this. And they asked the industry and they commented on it. So these controls, these frameworks, these standards, these mandates, they represent really good ideas. The only problem is they're inherently bound to this retrospective timescale. So that's what we wanted to disrupt. And so we did. We asked, where is the best source of data? Where's that ground truth? Where's the objective data? Not opinion, right? And what I call traditional compliance management and audit management, it's opinion farming at scale. That's what it is. You're asking a lot of people to give you their opinions and you do it at micro level of a single control. That's very common. You go to a system owner and you say, hey, tell me about this control. Tell me what it's doing. We're going to capture that. It's going to go into some spreadsheets. Sometimes we're going to write a report about it. We'll, get, we'll publish it and then it'll go to the auditors, right? And then they'll accept it or not. And they'll challenge you a lot, right? That's that inconsistency again coming in. You'll have a negotiation about it. You'll have a little party and you'll talk about the controls and, and mitigation tactics and, and compensating controls, et cetera, right? And so if, if you want to really change that model, you have to say, well, Where's the actual truth? Where's the trust? How do we get to that? And the answer is you go to data, right? You go to the source of truth and you go to the technical controls, right? Administrative controls are fine, right? We have to capture them. You know, are you doing awareness training? Yes, we are. Now, can you actually do this in a way that you can create telemetry around that? Can you automate that process? Can you actually do awareness training in, in an engaging way like you talked about, Jack, right? So you're actually doing exercises. You're getting people involved. You're getting their hands on something. You know, you, you put them in some kind of a sandbox or a lab where they can actually play with these things. Can you capture that data? Can you add that to, to the mix of, of the telemetry that you're collecting from all the technical resources like the firewalls and servers and your cloud instances, et cetera, right? So if you can put that together in that single, the, the, the ultimate single pane of glass that we all want, right? Uh, where, where, is, where is the bulk of that data live? Well, it's probably going to mean some kind of a SIM. And of course, SIM has evolved over the years. And you probably want some kind of a big data platform. So for us, that big data platform is Splunk. That's our big partner. We've been partners with them for over a decade. And so we, we looked at that not so much as, you know, who is the leading provider of that technology. For us, it just made perfect sense because we were looking for that, sub, that objective ground truth that came from the environment itself, right? If we can bypass, eliminate human hands and human interaction with the data across its entire uh, life cycle, right, from the actual control, from the point of collection, 
all the way to it becoming a pixel on somebody's dashboard that some auditor or board member looks at. We wanted to understand how many hands have touched it and how many folks have applied their opinion to it, right? So how much of that trust has been eroded by the inherent limitations of the traditional compliance models? So that's what we focused on. And that's what we built. So from our perspective, yes, there is a way to do it. It's called Converge Continuous Compliance. And that's that's what we'd love to talk to you about. Yeah, I mean, that's um, a lot better than the previous uh, policy. So my experience with a lot of compliance and risk is two things. Uh, one, it's a package. It's a package you do ahead of time before you set up a network um, or a circuit or whatever else as far as the controls go. And then I used to use it in an operational method where I would look up what does this package entail, what type of risk controls are applied here, what type of data is it using, and I would evaluate these things. But like you said, it's eight to 12 months out of date. It might be years out of date, depending on when it was set up. And it's always, it was, it was, it was this completely independent item that was just done, filed, and, you know, there for whenever the auditor comes through. And it, it does complicate things. I mean, it's, you know, I used to use a reasoning for re-images when it came to systems that I found in an incident that, you know, compliance had been invalidated, need to re-image and set back to the compliant state because of the breach, you know, or the compromise, whichever you want to say, um, on a particular system. And it's a good reasoning, right? Because it's technically true. You can't trust that system anymore once it's been compromised. But realistically what does that mean for us it just meant a baseline like a compliance model was the baseline of the image or the server or the device or whatever else Um, and then you look at it from a network perspective if you're talking about you know network segmentation and the way that things are communicating you know how does that architecture look is it compliant right and it just seemed to become from an operational standpoint a catch-all for what is expected and is it there right And real time, I think, would be amazing. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent checking logs just to make sure things are or are not compliant. I mean, even, you know, you have the new hotness vulnerability that just comes out and I have to check compliance data. Is this or is this not affected or something else like that? Is it using this particular model software, even though it's not on our approved list, things like that because of compliance or however micro or macro you want to go. So I think over, you know, real-time data being able to both engage with it from a compliance standard and then also operational standard Mm -hmm. super powerful so i want to jump in and remind everyone that um we are conducting this live poll right now because a lot of this poll relates to exactly what we're talking about Um, head over to info.ine.com grc it's right at the top of your screen um, for most of the stream, take part in the poll. You can drop in your answers. Also register to see the results, get insights into industry trends um, as it relates to exactly what we're talking about here today. Um, I want to get to another question. This is Janet Manning watching on LinkedIn today. Janet, thank you for the question. She asked, what is the best way to combine risk, compliance, IT, and cybersecurity? Great question. Thank you for that, Janet. So we feel that, again, convergence, it, it's, it has to start as a conversation at a very high level, right? If you try to do this as a bottom-up exercise and you basically try to look at it as, you know, what tool do we buy, what platform do we enable, et cetera, it, it can be very difficult to bring that in, right? So you really do have to look at things as an organizational change leadership conversation. So you have to talk to the leaders about that, right? You know, grassroots uh, change does not happen. I mean, you can have a revolution or you can have a mutiny, but that's very rare. And of course, in organizations, it doesn't really work. So 
you really have to talk to the CISOs and the CTOs, CROs, uh, you know, chief risk officers, chief compliance officers, uh, you know, legal department, right? Folks who tend to be involved in the compliance lifecycle on a daily basis and or either deal with it because that's their job or deal with it because they, they're forced to deal with it because of, you know, the, the, the realities of compliance management. And so when you talk to a stakeholder, you can bring them into the room and you can, you can explain the value of converging on at least a portion of their function and really help them understand that the pivot point is really data. And, and you ask some basic questions, very high level questions. These are questions I like to ask when I do my discovery sessions with leadership of our client and prospect organizations is how much trust do you have in your program, right? And we see Forrester is coming out right now with this uh, new model called Trust Imperative. There's a lot of focus on trust. And so when you think about trust as a component of your corporate brand, you know, we're not just talking about reputational risk from a pure brand management perspective, but we're talking about trust as an integral component of who you are as a company. And, and security goes into that, compliance goes into that, risk management goes into that, and you know, your supply chain risk goes into that. So really, risk and trust become very synonymous. And when you think about kind of the externally facing importance of risk, you know, that tr- and, and trust, right? Uh, it it affects your ability. I mean, it really eventually does boil down to the impact on your PNL, right? Are you able to find suppliers that are willing to work with you? Are you willing to find customers that are willing to buy from you? Are you, willing to fi- are you able to fi- uh, find partners that are willing to work for you? Because right now we're getting the, into a regular climate where we're seeing a lot of enforcement from FTC, from the SEC. If you're a public company, that's something to be concerned about. Uh, we're seeing mandates coming out of the White House, you know, M2131, OMB uh, memorandum. We've got Executive Order 14028. Uh, you've got CMMC2. If you're in defense industrial base, and I can go on and on and on, right? So there's all of these new mandates that are coming out, and all of them, if you kind of were to analyze them at a very high level, they're asking for transparency, they're demanding accountability, and we just saw for the first time ever a personal consent decree being applied to an individual, not a company. And this happened with a former CEO of a company called Drizzly, which was an alcohol delivery company here in the U.S., and they were acquired by Uber. The CEO long left, right? This breach happened um, about, about 18 months ago. But uh, so a breach happened during his tenure. He left the company after the acquisition. FTC has come down on the company with a set of fines and demands for, for them to uh, create a better security program. Well, so now the CEO is carrying actually a personal consent decree. Anywhere he goes from this point forward, he has to actually abide by FTC rules and, and regulations when it comes to creating a good security program. And he has tremendous oversight. So he's gonna be living under that consent decree for the foreseeable future, uh, probably I think over the next, in the next five years, if, if my memory serves. So this is the level of scrutiny we're getting to. So as a company and as a leader, you have to think about what does that do if you have a breach? What does it do if you can? I mean, look, everybody gets breached, right? Jack talked about that. It's it's an eventuality. It's not it's not you know the, the chance is virtually one hundred percent that you'll get breached at some point. But what you can do to actually demonstrate you actually had a functional program that you've done the due diligence, you've done the right thing, that you are credibly responsible and accountable for to your organization and to your customers and to your regulators. To, for building a good security program, that's the big question. And how do you how do you answer that question, right? And you have to an- answer it, in my view, by building a coalition of partners within your organization that can understand the value of that convergence, right? If you can stop treating risk as somebody else's problem, you actually understand it from an organization-wide standpoint, and you say everybody has a hand in this, Everybody certainly has a role to play in this, kind of like we do with security, right? We just elevate that a layer higher, right? We're starting to talk about risk, and then the next layer is trust. So when you think about trust 
and what that means within the company, what it means outside the company, and the trust that people have in your brand when you think about, you know, when your name comes up, what do they think about, right? Uh, and how it affects your outcomes as, as an organization, as an enterprise, as a business. So um, that's sort of how you start the conversation. And then you get people to understand, look, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of the same data that we use. So the convergence model is really, it's a no-brainer. It's a natural uh, next evolutionary step in a better, more effective, more efficient program that doesn't have the separation of powers, that, that actually is working on a more of a collaborative basis. And there are obviously technologies that, you know, kind of technologies that we're bringing to market that, that allow people to do that. But we don't start the conversation with technology, right? It's not a conversation about buy our platform, buy our technology, believe in what we do. It's really about the belief system, right? If you believe that convergence is the next evolutionary step, and we believe that it is, if you believe that these functions can truly help each other and really work more collaboratively, not separately, then then we've got something something we can talk to you about. But yeah, that's that's our approach. That's the way we think about that. That's so, yeah. so Jack then, and that's very interesting, Igor, um, where do you think cyber insurance fits into this conversation? Well, I think right now we have one, too much reliance on it. Um, I think that too many businesses are using it, not just as it's designed to be the gap for whenever the breach does happen, but they are leaving too much risk to be transferred into the cyber insurance realm. Uh, the problem that you run into there is like, once the data is gone, the data is gone. It, what, like the, the effects are felt. And while the company may be able to pay out so much money or you know clean it up or anything else like that, your consumers are then faced with the risk of their data having been breached now transfers over into possibly identity theft or account takeover later on down the road. And I think that it's become unfortunately so commonplace for a company to get breached and so many people to have lost data that you're not seeing the same reputation hits as you used to do. So with that, you know, they pay into, and I say they, I mean companies, companies pay into this, you know, fund basically, this, this uh, slush fund of, oh no, if this does happen one day, we'll at least be covered. And the problem is, is that you see sometimes a lack of technical controls as an outset, like, oh, don't worry, insurance has it. Whereas you should look at a cyber operations on a day-to-day -day basis, as in checking your blind spots when you're driving, putting on your seatbelt and your tens and twos and everything else like that from operating on a, you know, genuinely safe mantra of safe driving. Whereas your cyber insurance should be just like the insurance on your vehicle. You shouldn't touch it unless you have a catastrophic incident and you're in your, you know, your uh, airbags, you can even look at it as your, you know, glass break situation for your accounts and stuff like that. Like you should not touch these things unless you are having a catastrophic uh, incident to where you might face, you know, bankruptcy or some form of, you know, significant hindrance to the business, uh, you know, could, to the point of being crippling realistically you know we've had some individuals that have uh had a business that went under as a result of a cyber attack so it's it's one of those things where i think that we are looking too much as oh don't you know driving around with our seatbelt off going oh don't worry i've got insurance 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that's an interesting analogy. Yeah, I, I, I can't agree more. I think a lot of folks have also uh, come to an unpleasant realization, kind of a surprising realization of, of the limitations of their insurance coverage. And, uh, you know, we saw that with all the ransomware attacks over the last couple of years, especially the, you know, the huge peak during the pandemic. Everybody went home. All the enterprise controls kind of faded away because, well, they weren't there and, and the people weren't within the enterprise anymore. So you're sitting at home, you're getting hit. You don't have a lot of resources. You, you don't even have somebody to turn to and go, does this look a phishing link to you or does it not? Right. So people kind of were left on, on their own, hoping that we can push out these controls to the endpoints. And that wasn't very effective. Right. We didn't send them out to a lot of tools and we also didn't send them out to a lot of knowledge because, you know, it was only as good as the last security awareness training that they had. And that was probably six months ago or, or maybe a year ago. Right. So when the pandemic hit. So we've had this huge peak of ransomware. And then turns out these insurance policies weren't really covering it. They were barely covering the remediation costs for maybe like an offshore firm. It was certainly not a tier one firm, not like a Mandiant. Right. And yeah. so when you realize, OK, well, I've got, you know, I had this policy. Well, what was the coverage? Well, it turns out you didn't read the actual the actual policy itself. And then there's the next level, right, where uh, some of these attacks were actually classified as nation state acts and mm -hmm. acts of war are typically excluded under traditional policies. And so that's exactly what AXA of France did about a year and a half ago, I believe, where they basically said, we got to deny this coverage. And I think yeah. that case is actually being resolved right now. I'm about to read some news about it. But yeah, so there was this massive lawsuit. We're talking about billions, right, where they basically denied coverage. They said no, this was an act of war. And what was interesting about it, they unilaterally declared something to be a nation state act, which typically re involves some kind of a you know, State Department or Foreign Services, you know, Department of something like that. It has to be mm -hmm. official. It has to be by, by an actual nation state. Uh, but they took a unilateral action as a private company and said, well, we, we don't think we don't think we're going to cover it. And they I mean, they had to get fought on that in court. So I think it's resolving actually in the plaintiff's favor. I think the, the insureds are actually getting coverage in the end. But don't quote me on that just yet. So, yeah, no, insurance I'm is not a catch all. That's the other thing. There's the other thing that people <laughs> actually use is the risk register. And I've seen that time and again. We don't know what to do with this thing. We don't have mitigating controls. We can't even figure out how expensive it's going to be. We know it's going to be expensive. So we'll just pretend that we are a nuclear company and we're going to self-insure because really there's nobody who can write insurance for something like that. So we'll just go ahead and carry on the books and we'll create a risk acceptance letter. And we'll just what they call rally it. We'll just rally it and they'll be fine. Right. So just because you're not thinking about it didn't mean it went away. You're still carrying that risk on the books. It remains mm -hmm. unaddressed, unmitigated, and and that's that's problematic. So when you think about also what the insurance companies are doing, they want to know a little more, or actually a lot more, about what the control state is of as they do their underwriting, right? They want that transparency. So, so the thing we talked about before, the, the regulatory transparency, the, the need of regulators to understand exactly what you're doing in your program, not just get that one sheet of paper at the end of the year that says we're compliant, right? They want to know on a continuous basis. That's really hard, right? So insurance companies actually want that same thing. They want to understand what your control stack is, is doing, how effective it is. And they don't want to report from six years ago or two months ago. They want it now. So I think in terms of even, even, even being, being able to become an underwritable risk in this new environment, a lot of companies are going to face a lot of difficulty getting coverage at the level that they want. They might be able to get coverage to cover them for the re, uh, response services, but in terms of actually covering risk of loss from a cyber incident, very difficult. And so I think getting to a point where your compliance program and your security program can answer these questions on an ongoing continuous basis, kind of you know, wake me up at 3 a.m. On, on a Tuesday and tell me where your program is right now. 
right? It's kind of that classic commercial from the 80s. You know, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your kids are, right? It's, it's whatever p.m., right? Do you know where your controls are? Can you answer that question? I think a lot of folks basically would just default to pulling out their compliance report, which is only as good as the data that's in it. And by the way, yeah. that data is already old, right? So, so that's, I think that's a, that's a challenge for most. It's funny, uh, you know, going back to my metaphor previously about the vehicle, when you're talking about compliance and reporting and stuff like that, like on the road, there are compliance standards as well. And you'll get heads up whenever you're out of compliance standards with that little light we like to ignore on our dashboard. It'll say like, hey, you know, the engine's in trouble right now or you're running out of gas or whatever else. So that is a real time feedback of your current compliance on your vehicle with, you know, some things, and then you have to do regular checks for oil and tires. And so this is the same type of thing. If you think about the operations of a just going down the road, this would be the type of feedback that you're regularly receiving on. Is my tire blown out? Is my air pressure okay? Is my, you know, oil, does my oil need to be changed? Have I hit the mileage markers or whatever else? You know, it's, it's just necessary to safely operate the vehicle to actually do the operation. So I just kind of doubled back down on that. But when it comes to the risk and yeah, I mean, I talked to a friend of mine uh, about six years ago, whenever cyber insurance was really starting to kick up and he worked in insurance and he legitimately told me like, we're just kind of accepting stuff if they're willing to pay us. <laughs> like we're not even sure exactly where the policies are, but that was six years ago. Nowadays, they've got people in there who know exactly how to write these, <laughs> write out these policies to make sure that they're not covered, you know, getting hung up on seven figure, eight figure payouts and everything else like that for something that is just being glossed over from a control standpoint too, right? Absolutely. And you know, the funny thing is the, the underwriting process back in those days basically involved looking to see how many questions in a questionnaire somebody could get through. If they could get through about half, like, all right, maybe we'll write this risk. And again, the exclusions would always apply. So people were just so happy to get insurance and the insurance companies are very happy to cash that check, right? Get that premium knowing full well that the things were so fuzzy and remained so fuzzy for a long time that they could really wiggle out of covering anything past just a basic level of response, right? You know, we'll, of course, we'll get you, you know, some version of Mandiant to come in and, and do kind of a once over and hopefully, hopefully mm -hmm. try to get you back to operations. But ultimately, they were not on the hook for much beyond that. So they'll pay a million dollars, you know, a million and a half. Somebody will come in, do forensics, bring in law enforcement, and then you'll do a case and then maybe you'll recover, maybe not typically not. And that's about it, right? They weren't actually on the hook for any business losses, you know, in the in the yeah. tens of millions of billions, right? And and that's what most people misunderstood. And now, of course, as you pointed out, right, it's getting a lot more sophisticated. And, mm -hmm. and they want that transparency. And by the way, if you try to sneak past them, right, and even if you do, if you do hoodwink an underwriter, when it's it comes time to claims, they will find out, Right. They will oh, unwrap. Right. It's kind of like saying, yeah, I'm not a tobacco user. And then it turns out you smoke a pack a day. Right. And then, well, you know, he died. Now his wife goes to collect. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, the blood test showed that he's been a smoker for the last 25 years. We're not covering that. Right. So you mm. can you can try to get past that hurdle. But the reality is you can't. Right. They want they demand yeah. that transparency. And if your program is incapable of demonstrating that on an ongoing basis, kind of like like you talked about, right, the car dashboard. Right. If you if you can't show that dashboard with a very clear message, you know, it's green across the board, or maybe, hey, we can, we can, we don't have to be green all the way, right? But as long as you're honest about it, as long as there's credibility in it, that's fine, right? At least we know where we stand versus, well, we kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that it sticks, right? Controls have yep. to be answered for, investments have to be answered for. If you can understand it through a perspective of compliance, if you do it right, if you mm -hmm. do it right, if you do it in real time, continuous monitoring, absolutely important right if you don't know where you stand at any given time guess what your attackers do 
right? So they're not looking at check at the check boxes you checked three years ago or three months ago or three minutes ago, right? Hackers don't care about check boxes. That's that's a mantra to live by, right? They're not impressed by compliance reports. So stop living by the report. Stop living by the cyclical model. Go to the continuous model. Converge on risk. Converge on compliance. Converge on security. It's the same data. There is no security data, compliance data, risk data. It's all data, right? As long as you know that, that's a starting point, right? So fully agree. Fully agree. Igor and Jack, I think we could. I think we could talk about this all day, um, because the bottom line is this is complicated. This is challenging. It is affecting almost every single enterprise out there, right? And it is not going away. Um, we are going to wrap it up right now, but I just want to thank you guys both for joining us. Um, I, I think great conversation, some some jumping off points where we can we can follow up on this and um, and maybe uh, you know bring you back for a stream, Igor. We'd love to do that because a lot of questions and and, and again, I, I just think this is this is around to stay, right? Um, so thank you, thank you both for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. All right, that is going to wrap up today's stream. Thank you for watching. If you missed it live, look for the replay across our social channels as well as on the INE website. A quick reminder, uh, I mentioned this earlier, we are conducting a live poll right now. You can head over to info.ine.com slash GRC right there on your screen to take part in the poll. You can just drop your answers in, also register to see the results and get insight into industry trends as it relates to GRC. All the things we were talking about today and more. Be sure to like and subscribe on the social media platform you're using right now so that you can stay in the loop for details on all our streams and get notifications when we do go live. We'll see you, in the, uh, we'll see you next time. Until then, have a great week.